Welcome to Acquiring Minds, a podcast about buying businesses. My name is Will Smith. Acquiring an existing business is an awesome opportunity for many entrepreneurs. And on this podcast, I talk to the people who do it. My guest today is Mike Curry, who acquired a medical physics business in 2014. Mike goes deep in this conversation about the reality of becoming the CEO of a small business. It is not easy, as you've heard over and over from guests on Acquiring Minds, especially during the transition, when not only is there a learning curve to understand the business you just acquired, but many searchers are also becoming CEOs for the first time in that moment. And then, always, there's the challenge of earning the trust of your new employees. Mike puts this beautifully in the interview. You acquire the business. You don't acquire the hearts and minds of the employees. Strong words. So Mike and I got so deep during the conversation that I never had him define what the business he acquired actually does. So I'm putting it here. Apex Physics Partners provides support services to medical physicists and physics practices. And medical physics generally is the part of healthcare related to radiation and radiation safety. Now that you know what Mike acquired and runs to this day, here he is, Mike Curry. Mike Curry, thank you for joining me today on Acquiring Minds. Thank you for having me. You acquired a physics, a medical physics business, you and a partner in 2014. You're going to have to explain to us uh, what medical physics is. And in these last seven and a half years, you've grown the business considerably. You are still at the helm of the company. So we are going to hear the story of uh, a business acquisition, your story of business acquisition. But start us off, Mike, with uh, a little bit of background on you. Give us two or three minutes on um, you know, what you were doing before the acquisition and what led you to want to go out and buy a business. Sure. So I am originally from Atlanta, Georgia. I went to Emory University, where I was an undergraduate business major. And directly out of college, I took my first job in investment banking uh, in the UK, of all places. And so mm-hmm. I worked abroad, uh, worked there for three years, and had a family event. Uh, my father actually uh, took ill and passed away uh, from lung cancer, uh, which was a big uh, shift in my life and career plan. So I moved back to Atlanta. And I remember as a result of that life event, uh, thinking back to my graduation day uh, at college, Mm -hmm. where the dean of the undergraduate business program, who also taught entrepreneurship, uh, gave me and my mom a big hug when I told her that I got this great banking job and that I was moving to London. And she was very excited. Um, And she gave me a big hug and whispered in my ear, um, good luck with the banking job, but call me when you're ready to be an entrepreneur. Um, (laughs) And I think that she saw um, how my eyes lit up and how engaged I was in her entrepreneurship class. And so I think that she saw that some somewhere deep down uh, that entrepreneurial bug uh, still existed. And I thought when I moved back to Atlanta, um, if not now, when? Mm -hmm. And so my first entrepreneurial venture was uh, starting a men's custom clothing business called Phoenix Bespoke with a college uh, classmate and good friend of mine. Mm -hmm. We ran the business from 2007 to 2008, 2009. uh, And we, as many other small businesses, uh, felt the crunch of the financial crisis and, um, you know, going as a bootstrap business uh, into the headwinds of a pretty difficult time in a difficult economy 
Uh, we had to make the really tough decision to, um, to close down the business. Uh, but one of the uh, pieces of serendipity that came from that process was uh, I found out about uh, acquiring a small business uh, through conversations with one of our key customers. And so one of our customers in the clothing business uh, graduated from business school, um, teamed up with a classmate of his and started to search for a small business to purchase. They found a business uh, in Arizona, bought that business. They were on the path of growing that business and found an additional business in a similar industry uh, in Atlanta, which uh, brought him to Atlanta to acquire and then integrate that business. And so was sitting um, one day talking um, with you know, a client who's, who's also a friend and you know, over a Starbucks coffee. And, and that's when he really planted the seed and asked the question. He said, hey, you know, I know that you have a head for business and you're very entrepreneurial, um, but have you ever thought about buying a business instead of trying to start one from scratch? And I hadn't because I think, um, you know, I, like many folks, um, thought that the, you know, the, the archetype of an entrepreneur mm -hmm. is kind of what you read about an entrepreneur mag or in Fast Company or in Inc. where, you know, it's the bootstrap, you know, scrappy, you know, I have a once in a lifetime idea and come hell or high water, um, I'm going to make And But I never thought about entrepreneurship through acquisition, nor did I realize that um, you could actually buy an existing business, um, get in the business, you know, identify opportunities to uh, to grow the business, to grow as a person, as a leader, um, and produce, you know, not only a good living, um, but a really good result for the company and for the people that work for you. And so with that little nugget of that conversation, I started to go to YouTube and I found a few grainy videos um, <laughs> about, uh, you know, people buying businesses. And, and, and uh -huh. I think the, the concept of you know, entrepreneurship through acquisition has has clearly grown in popularity over the years. Um, but if you kind of rewind to 2008, 2009, there were a few people, um, but it still seemed pretty far off. Um, but I did catch a video of a professor at Stanford University uh, by the name of Irv Grosbeck, who mm -hmm. is one of the, uh, you know, one of the godfathers of the search fund model, which is a path um, a specific path towards entrepreneurship through acquisition. And, you know, not knowing who he was or how important he was to the ecosystem, um, I looked him up on Google and I just cold called him. Mm -hmm. And he actually <laughs> answered the phone and was gracious enough to spend 45 minutes to an hour uh, talking to me about, you know, buying a business, about the fact that he had personally invested and mentored uh, other young people who had similar ambitions as myself, who kind of found themselves not necessarily wanting to work for a big corporate, um, but didn't have uh, the uh, game-changing technology, um, innovative startup either, but wanted to do something entrepreneurial. And I left that call with Irv um, with a really a renewed sense of excitement um, because I left the call feeling as though uh, this is something that I could do, that was achievable. It wasn't going to be easy, but there were more people out there uh, who had done it than I thought. And some of those people, as we progressed down our path of acquiring our business, 
turn into really allies, investors, and mentors. Mm -hmm. Um, So fast forward a couple of years, um, per the advice of uh, Irv on that conversation, I actually went back to business school. Um, I I felt as though there were some things that I still wanted to learn and wanted to use that time to kind of refresh my skill set and use some of the opportunity that I had in downtime to intern to actually work with uh, investment firms that were focused on purchasing small businesses and use that opportunity to learn from people who made a living identifying business opportunities for small businesses, knowing that that was a key missing ingredient to my skill set at the time. And uh, by the time I uh, graduated business school from the University of Chicago in 2013, uh, my business partner today and longtime friend from way back in university days at Emory University, both decided that we were at a point in our careers where we wanted to take this leap. We wanted to work together as partners to identify a small business, and we were going to do it together, and we raised our search fund. We moved back to Atlanta from Chicago and New York, respectively. We got a shoebox of an office. Uh, We got a couple of interns from Emory, our alma mater, and we started to call business owners, and we found a business just outside of Baltimore doing medical physics. And almost eight years later, uh, and wait, wait, Mike, you're, you're jumping ahead here. <laughs> oh, so, okay. so, we, so, so let me, let me uh, hop in here with a couple of questions. So, um, did you, was Booth, uh, as associated with search funds, um, in 20, you, you went there 2012, 2013, was that? Yes. Right. Cause it is, it's certainly associated with them today. Although I've talked to a couple of other people who went to Booth a little bit earlier on. And who said that, yeah, at that time, like the difference between going in 2011 or 2015 in terms of search, there was a big difference. So was search, search funds, was that something that Booth students were doing during your your time at Booth? Um, not nearly as much as you would find today. So yeah. I, I kind of feel like I was in the, the prehistoric ages yeah. of, of ETA at Booth. Um, there was definitely a lineage of people who had done it over the years. And so it was a small enough community of Booth alum over the years. And so over the years could be spanning from the mid nineties through 20, you know, 12, 13, there may have been three or four people. So there wasn't a huge data set and there weren't a huge number of people who were attending the school who were, you know, reaching out to those folks. So to that effect, it was a pretty tight knit, small community but people were pretty responsive when you did reach out. Um, what I will say is you know, entrepreneurship through acquisition and search funds started to gain in popularity. And I can remember that um, a, a close friend of mine, Alex Hotchkin, um, who is also a Booth alum, um, he, um, as well as uh, Professor Kaplan um, at the school, were really starting to wrap their heads around um, you know, seeing what was happening at schools like Stanford, at mm-hmm. Wharton, um, at Harvard Business School, at other schools, um, at Northwestern, mm-hmm. and, and starting to see that this was something that was of interest to students. And so interestingly enough, um, I got to be a fly on the wall uh, at many of these conversations. I was the president of the Entrepreneurship Through Acquisition Group uh, while attending Booth. 
Um, ah. It was a really tiny group. And to see it now <laughs> and to also see a class being taught and a conference being right. held um, right. is really remarkable to see. Uh, but in the early days, um, I think the school was starting to see that this was something that was of interest to students as well as alumni. So I think schools have also done a really good job of not only um, presenting you know, this career path to students as they're getting their degrees, but then circling around um, as people have been out of school three years, five years, seven years, uh, where they may be thinking of doing something else with their careers and, and, and reaching back out and engaging people um, with resources and tools and, 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 and options um, to pursue this. So that's one thing I do, do want to share is that um, I do think one of the beautiful things about entrepreneurship through acquisition is um, it is not um, solely um, the, the, the path for newly minted MBAs. I know a number of people who um, in their 40s, 50s, um, even beyond, um, have pivoted from their careers, have retired in some way, shape, or form, and decided that with their experience or with um, their relationships and contacts, or they know a particular industry cold, that there are opportunities for them to identify you know, interesting businesses that they want to be involved in as, as kind of the operators and leaders of those businesses. So it, it really is, you know, I want to kind of share that it is a path that is available for a really large swath and diverse group of people. That's great. That's a, that's a great point, Mike, because um, certainly I'll be the first to admit that all of my guests have been people in their probably thirties and low forties, maybe a couple of people in their late twenties, mid late twenties. Um, but um, like many things in business, you know, in your mid forties or, or later that, you know, um, you just stop hearing people talk to you, you know, they're, they're talking to 20 year olds and 30 year olds. So Mike, when you, when you went to booth, you, you were already enamored of the concept of ETA. You'd had your conversation with uh, the Stanford guru. You'd done your YouTube research were you basically decided even before you started at the program that you were going to buy a business after business school, or it was just kind of percolating, but you weren't sure what, what path you were going to go on? I would say, to be honest, I was probably 90% sure. And um, by the time I got to the end of my first year, I think that was the real gut check moment because um, I know myself and I know that I'm a pretty competitive person. And so if you start to go down the path of recruiting for banking or for private equity or for um, technology or consulting, um, you know, I know that if I had gone down that path and done a summer, I would have wanted to do well during the summer, which, you know, touch wood would mean that I may have had an opportunity to come back full time. And then I would have had a much more difficult decision to make. And so at the end of my first year, I made a really um, tough but right decision for myself um, to not kind of throw my hat in the ring to do some of that traditional um, summer internship recruiting. Yeah. And I was fortunate to, um, you know, to, to land a, um, a, an internship with a local private equity firm. Um, with the understanding that there was a a less than 10% probability that there would be a job for me at the end of my tenure uh, at business school, which was great for me because, again, that also aligned very nicely with 
um, that nudge that I would need to get out there and continue with the plan. But it also yeah. gave me an opportunity to, to learn again from people who are evaluating businesses every day, looking at business models, talking to business owners. And so I learned quite a bit um, in that internship and being a fly on the wall and seeing how um, professionals look at businesses and, um, you know, frankly, how um, the process of evaluating and buying a, and running a business, particularly a small business, is, is art and science. Mm -hmm. um, everything doesn't translate purely into the numbers. And there's a lot of art in terms of building relationship and, uh, you know, making sure that you, uh, you know, engage with that team and sell the team on the vision for yeah. the future of the business that you want to build. And a lot of that stuff you just can't find in a PowerPoint presentation or in an Excel spreadsheet. Mike, what do, what do you say to people who want to buy a business who didn't get any, don't have any and didn't go out like you and get some private equity experience? All the stuff that you just talked about um, that you learned in that in that stint at the private equity shop that was so valuable to you. Can I go out and buy a business if I don't have that experience? A absolutely. Um, and, and what I would say is, there are probably more resources at your disposal today. Um, kind of virtually, there are you know online communities um, like searchfunder.com. There are LinkedIn yep. groups now. I think there are a lot more affinity groups. Uh, there are uh, small business lawyers and small business diligence experts um, yep. and an ecosystem of people who can help uh, can help you navigate the path. So I think that those are not, uh, you know, having private equity experience or interning at a private equity fund is not a necessary condition uh, whatsoever. But what I would say is um, before you, you know, launch a search or embark on the path, I think uh, there are a number of books that have now been written about, you know, entrepreneurship through acquisition. I would say do your diligence. Um, again, I think, there are a lot of communities. A lot of the members of those communities are pretty open to engaging with people who may not have all of the experience that I alluded to earlier, but have a desire to buy a small business. And so I think that there are a lot of people and the resources that you can tap into before you have to kind of jump out and do it on your own. So I would definitely say, do your research, um, you know, get books, get engaged in online communities, you know, look at a lot of the material that's on YouTube, you know, go on LinkedIn and find people who have done it, you know, reach out to people such as yourself, right? By, by virtue of your platform, you know, people who've done it before. Yeah. Uh, what I find that's really encouraging about the ETA community is uh, folks who have done it tend to be uh, pretty open-minded about paying yeah. it forward and, and, and passing along wisdom and introducing uh, people who want to do it to other folks that that can help them along their path. So there's lots of resources, there's lots of paths, there's lots of people who wanna see you be successful. So there's no need to have all of that experience, but there's also no need to go it alone and feel as though uh, there's no one out there to help. Cool. Mike, so when you, you and your partner were getting serious about buying a business, um, did you consider, why did you choose the traditional search fund model versus self-funded? or some other way? So I would say the, the practical answer was there were no funds to self-fund. 
so I self was, what? I was, yeah, I was I was gonna you know I was gonna get a a nice healthy bill at the end of my two year stint at the University of Chicago, um, and that, that's part of the answer. And I'm, I'm being a little bit facetious, but I would say the traditional search fund model was uh, the model that I knew the most about. Um, I would say that the self-funded path um, has grown in popularity and that ecosystem um, has really expanded in terms of um, banks that understand the needs of self-funded searchers, um, service providers. Um, I, I think all of that has really grown and, and I'm glad to see it. Um, again, I, I'm the, the, the traditional search model is what we did and what worked for us, um, mm -hmm. but I'm a proponent of ETA more broadly and, and whatever mm -hmm. path fits an individual, you know, their goals, their lifestyle, um, and their means, I, I, I say go for it. But I would say just familiarity with the model, um, just a reality of, um, of kind of, you know, our economic circumstance and particularly my economic circumstance finishing school. Yep. Um, and I think the last piece though, and, and it kind of goes back to this, this concept of community, mm -hmm. uh, the traditional search community, as Keith and I kind of sat down and, and, and thought about it, you had a, uh, a former investment banker and myself um, and Keith, who is a recovering corporate lawyer uh, today, mm -hmm. but was a, was, was a practicing attorney at the time, um, who had an, a head for business and an interest in business, but had never run anything um, substantial, right? So my previous entrepreneurial venture was two people. That was a, a bootstrap startup. Um, and really, we were only accountable to and for ourselves. Yeah. Uh, but buying a business with employees and, you know, customers with, you know, longstanding relationships and systems and a complexity that extended far beyond, you know, my two-person venture, we wanted to surround ourselves with a community of people who had seen past where we had seen up to that point from a professional perspective operating a business. And so what we wanted to get out of the traditional search in our experience, and I think that I've uh, now been able to connect with some folks who have done it on their own and self-funded, um, and they've created their own ways to create that brain trust and that advisory board, for lack of a better term, around them. But what we saw as being an advantage for us going down that path was um, it was something that had been done before. So there were people who had experience with yeah. the model. Um, yep. We were going to get investors who many of whom and most of whom in our case uh, actually had sat in the seat uh, and run a business. So we were going to be working with and learning alongside people who did know and understand the pitfalls and challenges that we were going to be facing. Uh, both from a business perspective and also just from a personal and emotional and psychological perspective. Um, it's very hard to go from being a type A personality, get the gold star individual contributor to really having to create results through other people. It's a very big shift in what you're being asked to do, right? As a banker, as a lawyer, um, you know, it is very project focused and you really contribute and make sure that your part of the project is up to snuff. Um, but you cannot, you know, achieve all of the objectives that you want to in a small business uh, on your own. And so learning how to humble yourself, learning how to spend more of your time coaching than doing 
Mm -hmm. it, it was really helpful for us to see that we were surrounding ourselves with people that can help us make that journey and make that transition as leaders. So that's mm -hmm. kind of why we decided to go down that path. Mm -hmm. And just two quick follow-up questions to that. The transition to leadership, exactly what you just touched on, that when you're an individual contributor, you just have to make sure your own work product is is as perfect as you want. And then the rest is somebody else's responsibility. And then now having to lead people and, you know, basically extract, that's the wrong word, but, um, you know, get them to put their best, uh, put out their best work. How, how did you find that transition? Because I, I think a lot of searchers are, are going to have, will have to go through a similar transition where they've never necessarily led before. How was that for you personally? So it, it's a tough transition. And um, I'll tell a really quick story. Um, about two years into us by having bought and run the company, we were struggling. Keith and I were struggling. There were more problems um, than we knew how to fix at mm -hmm. one time. Mm -hmm. And we had multiple stakeholders. So we had investors, we had employees, we had customers, um, and everybody needed something from us. And trying to figure out how to get everybody what they needed was really challenging. And I remember one day um, driving home from work and, uh, and going back to this concept of community, uh, actually talking to another search fund CEO who was a few years ahead of me and Keith. Uh, but also went to our alma mater. And so I knew I knew of this guy and I knew that he was in the search community and, and he scheduled some time to talk. And we just needed someone to vent to that. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. this is hard. And how did you get the team to do this? And how did you get your investors comfortable with this? And the one thing that he shared um, or two things that he shared that really helped us on our journey is one, he introduced us to this book um, written by Ben Horowitz called The Hard Thing About Hard Things. Yeah. And reading that book and seeing the honesty and transparency and vulnerability of an individual who didn't have it all figured out, um, admitting that as the CEO, he didn't have it all figured out and that he still had imposter syndrome and he still was wondering whether he was building the right culture and treating people the right way and making the right decisions. It almost gave me a sense of comfort that I'm not the only person and Keith, we're not the only people who've gone through this and struggled yeah. through this. So that gave me a sense of comfort. And then the second thing that he shared, which really I think was a transition point for both of us was he let us vent for about five straight minutes about this person, that person, this situation. And he said, the best advice that I can give you is as the leader of the company, you should recognize that it's all your fault. <laughs> and I just, and I, I was floored by that. And he said, what I mean by that you were is like, that you're you, like, I was calling you to make me feel better. <laughs> exactly. And, and now I feel not even slightly, but materially worse because it's all my fault. But what, what he was saying was there is just a different level of accountability and responsibility. And until you make the transition to say, right, I did not cause, I was the, cause all of the problems in the business, right? I don't get to direct all of the personalities that I interact with, but until I kind of make that switch in my brain that 
I am responsible for the result and that I have to take the reins versus letting the business kind of pull me along or let Mm -hmm. investors pull me along or customers kind of jerk you around. And I think at that point, um, I think one, it didn't solve all of the problems, but I think that it gave us a sense of of a a greater locus of control Hmm. and a greater sense of agency that it was up to us to manage, right? Employee issues, right? It was up to us to manage how we wanted to relate to our board of directors, right? It was up to us to, if, if we had a relationship with a customer where we were giving our all and we just kept getting blessed out, we had to manage that relationship. And if we felt as though that customer relationship was abusive and wasn't good for the team, we we actually were the people who got to make that call. And so yeah. we had to make some of those decisions to say, hey, um, this is a great paying customer, but at the end of the day, you know, we've sent three team members to service this customer and all three of them have come back, you know, upset, crying, or, you know, not exuding kind of their regular positive energy. It is our responsibility to fix that. And I think once we started to feel as though we were empowered to make those changes and not be at effect to them, I think things started to change and we started to build um, a respect from our employees and we started to build a trust. And the one piece of advice that I would give people is um, you know, when you buy a business, you, you don't buy the hearts and minds of the employees, right? And, you know, a lot of people want to make a lot of changes and they see growth potential and they see all of the great things that they want to do with the business. Mm-hmm. But that is only truly achievable once you've earn the respect and trust of your team and you have found a way to clearly articulate what you and your vision is for the business and how they can work with you to help achieve this vision and that that vision is going to be better for everyone. And that's something, frankly, that we struggled with um, in the early days and and coming from environments where we were individual contributors um, and pretty well paid for being individual contributors um, we kind of came in with the mentality that you just come in and, you know, work your tail off and you leave and that's reward in and of itself. And at the end of the year, you know, when the yeah. bonus fairy comes, it takes care of itself. But yeah. <laughs> the business that we bought, it was more like a family. And, you know, the first thing that we learned very quickly is that people appreciate and respect money, but money was not our best tool in the toolkit to motivate and to build alignment. And it, and it kind of blew our minds. And, yeah. you know, you, you always think about, you don't need to pay attention in business school to the touchy-feely organizational behavior classes, but those are the classes that I think I drew upon the most Yeah, to understand why people come to work, to understand, you know, something as simple as the CEO and president sitting down to have lunch with the admin staff every day. Um, something as simple as um, the president and CEO taking out the trash. You know, yeah. All of those things um, contribute to, I think, winning the hearts and minds. And so I think a lot of people in business forget that 
um, particularly as you lead a business and you want to grow it, it's only so much that you can do on your own. And, you, and you're really creating a challenge for yourself if you skip that step of getting to know your people and thinking about the culture that you want to build. Because uh, you can come in with the, the, the greatest PowerPoint and plan and Excel spreadsheet, um, but that's not really how um, getting everybody wrong in the right direction and achieving those objectives works in practice from our experience. One of the traditional searchers that I, I spoke with recently, his his interview actually aired today. His first two weeks in the seat, he just interviewed every single person at the organization. So he didn't, you know, none of his to-do lists, none of his vision ideas, none of, none of the things on his PowerPoint uh, or even, his, even in his own mind were a priority. That was just all put aside. In fact, I think he even kind of went in thinking, yeah, I might have some ideas, but I'm really not going to understand this business until I get in and live in the business and talk to everybody. So um, let me do that. And he did it systematically, every single person. And, and that's one of the things he now recommends to searchers coming up behind him. You know, another way, Mike, that I, I might characterize this, um, and you can please correct me, it, it, it almost feels like when you guys got in there in this first year or two, that you didn't really feel like it was your business, like your business at, at kind of a visceral level. It felt like you were, maybe you'd been hired to be the CEOs, but you had bought this business and owned this business and needed to internalize that as much as if you had founded it from scratch. Is, is that, is, 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 am I onto something there about kind of the emotional shift that occurred? I, you're, you're absolutely correct. And it is a shift. And I think that um, that's why I think, you know, what, what the searcher that you alluded to is, I think that's the right start. But I think that it's those deposits over time as a leader are the things that are going to build trust. So, for example, uh, when, when, we, uh, when, we, when we bought the company in 2014, we, we talked to employees. Um, we brought in a, a third party that gave us some great intel on some very anonymous intel. But what we recognized is that we were very forthcoming that we wanted feedback, we wanted to make things better, we wanted to make it a better place, but no one believed us, right? Mm. And so I would get in my car and Keith would get in his car and meet some of our staff you know, on site or close to their homes and just grab coffee and catch up. And so mm -hmm. we would, we'd ask them, hey, what's going on? What could we fix? And a lot of the times people would just say, yeah, everything is fine. Oh. And we knew that everything wasn't fine, but we knew mm -hmm. that there was a culture that we inherited um, where people didn't necessarily know whether or not, um, you know, the leaders really wanted to hear what was going on, particularly negative feedback, or if there were areas of improvement that would make things better, um, ideas and suggestions kind of fell on deaf ears. and so. I think for us, you know, we did get some really good feedback in the first year and then spending the second year showing people that we cared about the feedback and we actioned some of the things, right? We, 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 and we, we never promised that things wouldn't change and we never promised that we could solve all of the issues in the business overnight. But I can tell you that you know, once we started having staff meetings and we said, hey, we listen to you guys and across these three or four dimensions, we hear you loud and clear. We got to fix these things. And then being able to report back to the staff, right? In this bucket, issue number one, we fixed it. Yeah. 
Yep. Right. And then, you know, over the course of the next year, after having, you know, shown that we we were credible and that the culture that we said that we wanted matched, right? Where people could say, well, hey, I just had a meeting with Mike and Keith, and I know they keep saying that they 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 value healthy debate, and they were debating with one another. And then I told them, here's what I thought. And I left the, the room and no one chastised me. And they actually heard me. And between the three ideas on the table, they took my idea. And now my idea is the idea mm. that's helping to solve one of the challenges. Like that process started to, to build it where psycho- like emotionally and psychologically, it started to feel like our business and our team. Yeah. And, and it just took time. And it just took time to build that that trust. And and once you feel, and there isn't, isn't just one day you get out of the bed, but I think it's just a feeling that when you feel as though people trust you and trust the direction that you're taking the business in, then it feels like it's your business and you know, you're not pulling an organization, you know, forward, but people are like, I see it. I believe it. I'm contributing to it. You know, I can raise my hand if things aren't going well. But um, if I see a problem, part of the culture is I got to own it. So I I can't just throw monkeys and complaints on Mike and Keith's back and then go home. I've got to actually raise my hand and say, hey, I don't think that we're doing this right. And so I'm going to put together a little committee of people and we're going to come up with some options and solutions. And so it took us about two years to really feel like um, the team trusted us that we had really properly stepped into our authority as the leaders of the company. And then from there, we started to, I think, start to move the business in the direction of the original plan. And I think that all goes to say as well, um, this path is not a microwaved path to success. <laughs> so for people who think that, you know, oh, I'm going to jump in. And in 12 months, I'm going to solve these challenges. I'm going to, you know, quadruple this business. And I, you may, and if you can do that, bless you. That has not been our experience. I don't think that that is the typical experience. Um, I think what is the typical experience is that um, it takes time for you to build your muscle as a leader, for you to build the trust with the team, for the team to get in sync, for you to you know, to add some people to the team that help you get to where you want to go. And it's really about building that momentum so that the things that you really wanted to do with the business, now you have the momentum for years and years to come to achieve the success that you want. But I don't, you know, I would not tell people with a straight face that, you know, this is a path that typically leads to microwave results. I think it's more of a patient, consistent effort. Um, and I tell people, um, people probably overestimate what they can do in a year and underestimate what they can do in five. And so it was really special, um, actually in our fifth year of ownership to take, uh, some of that feedback that we got in the first year, cause it took us a while. Um, but we took a slew of feedback, um, positive and negative, and we put it together in a presentation. And we shared it with the entire company. And at year five, we did just a little bit of a retrospective. So we showed people 
um, how many employees were at the business, the size of the business, um, the type of equipment that we had, the benefits that we had, the customers that we had, uh, the leadership structure and opportunities for career advancement. So we, we really got to show people it, it, it didn't seem like it because it took time. Yeah. But let's all take a blast to the past when Mike and Keith showed up, um, you know, 50 miles north of Baltimore in horse country with cufflink shirts, completely out of place, <laughs> completely out of place, right? Where we started and then where we ended up five years later in being able to honestly and proudly report that to a large degree, the issues and opportunities addressed in the feedback session had been executed against and that the company was larger, the company was on better financial standing, um, people were making more money, you know, more take home, the company had grown, um, you know, Mike, Mike, share some of those specifics with me. How many, how many employees was it when you acquired it and how many was it five years later? And if you can talk revenue and sales as well, locations, anything, any metrics, that would be interesting. Sure. So I'll, I'll focus on kind of headcount, which is, is a good barometer for, for kind of sales. But when we started, there were, uh, 16 people total in the business, um, including Keith and myself. Um, five years later, we were at 34 people, um, and essentially we doubled the technical staff, um, which just as a, a rough benchmark, um, kind of approximates that we doubled the size of the revenue of the business to have, um, enough revenue to support, you know, 10, you know, essentially doubling the technical staff. Um, and we've grown beyond that. And so we've, um, gotten each person on that team their own set of equipment where people were sharing equipment. Um, we've markedly improved the benefits package, the time paid time off um, policy, uh, continuing education policy. Um, we've improved, um, again, uh, career opportunities. We, we were a flat organization at 16. It was Mike and Keith and everybody else. And today we have a president of that group we have two uh, senior managers that report to the president. We have team leads. We have now a regulatory QA person. We have a client service manager where that was a flat side of the business. And so we've been able, um, and this is actually for me the most rewarding um, part, of, part of the gig is, um, you know, we hired a woman in 2015 to be a part-time admin from Craigslist. Um, and she is now our uh, director of HR uh, and uh, head of integrations uh, for all of Apex. And so we took yeah. KGHP, grew it, took some of our learnings, built a larger organization, and have continued to acquire businesses under, under the new banner. And to see people from that original team in 2014 and 2015 progress and blossom and do things that, frankly, you know, sitting around the lunchroom table in the early days, you know, folks thought we were crazy. That is truly, um, I think, one of the most rewarding kind of elements. And I think that that's something that people don't uh, think that they will feel as rewarded by um, because, you know, obviously there are financial rewards, you know, by owning a business and growing a business and, you know, you know building 
you know, your wealth and financial independence and the like. But I think also, I don't think there's a greater feeling than seeing potential, grooming potential, and being a part of helping somebody achieve their goals and vision yeah. and mission and life and give them access to opportunity. And I think that that's a, it's a really cool position to be in, you know, running a business and, and, and because you're running a small business and you have a pulse of what's going on, the feedback and the impact that you're able to make is a lot more direct, right? You, you are directly involved in, you know, the hiring and the, and the culture that you're building and how people are compensated and uh, what new challenge you're going to take on next. And how are you going to give this person an opportunity to prove him or herself? It's just a direct one-to-one feedback loop of, uh, of being able to create impact, um, you know, for yourself, but, but before your team. Mike, we're, we're about at time, but I want to ask you a question related to why you, so I, I found you because of that article that you published in an entrepreneur magazine that was basically advocating acquisition ETA entrepreneurship through acquisition. But this article is from August and you've been talking about and excited about ETA, I guess, going back to those grainy videos in 2008, 2009 on YouTube. So why now? Why, what, what inspired you to publish this article at this moment in time? So I think a few things. Um, I think Candidly, I was working my butt off for a long time, and I just wanted to make sure that 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 I was I was being a good steward of the business. Um, but I think the second piece is, uh, you know, both Keith and myself uh, were really impacted um, by the killing of George Floyd and a lot of the um, conversations that were happening um, in the country around social justice, economic justice, um, and and access to opportunity. And I just observed in a lot of the press that I read um, that there was a lot of movement and activity to uh, to open the aperture in terms of opportunity and diversity for entrepreneurship, uh, particularly mm-hmm. in the startup world, uh, mm-hmm. which I think is great and I think uh, is sorely needed. Um, but I think that this path of entrepreneurship through acquisition, I think both from a from a ethnic perspective, from a gender perspective, from an age perspective, from a professional background perspective, I think more people um, should be educated and made aware that, yeah. that, that this is a career path and opportunity. And I wanted to, um, to, to highlight that um, there are different ways to achieve success and that all of that success um, doesn't look the same. All of that success doesn't come from the same background. Um, and I think the big thing that Keith and I tried to do uh, when we do uh, do things like write articles and, and speak at schools or in other forums is we, we try to demystify the process and we try to let people know that on the outside looking in, um, these people who go out and buy businesses, um, a lot of whom are, are very polished and um, very smart, and sometimes it can be daunting and people don't feel as though they can do it. Or the mm-hmm. story that they hear is, I bought the business, I was really smart, everything worked swimmingly well, and you know I'm a rock star. And mm-hmm. I wanted to just share that our story wasn't that, and our story was rocky. And there were times where we doubted um, whether or not we would be able to be good leaders of the business. And you know I tell people a true story. Um, there was a time early in our, um, our leadership period 
where, you know, I drove home and I sat in a grocery store parking lot and I cried and I called my mom um, and asked her, you know, I spent all this money to go to business school. Am I, am I doing the right thing? Um, am I really cut out to be a CEO or a leader of a small business? And, you know, I just want people to know that it's not easy, um, but it's doable. And mm -hmm. I want more people um, to at least investigate it as an option and as a path if they mm -hmm. truly have that entrepreneurial bug. Um, and I think that it's just another way to express a desire uh, to lead, to manage, to grow um, outside of kind of, uh, like I said, going back to 2008, 2009, kind of what seems to be the typical perception of what entrepreneurship is, which is, you know, taking an idea from scratch and, um, you know, building a startup. There's There are other paths. I just want to make sure more people in more places from other backgrounds, no matter how you slice it, um, see someone or hear from someone uh, that it's achievable and doable. And, um, you know, Keith and I, you know, where we can also put our money where our mouths are, but definitely, uh, we definitely put our time uh, where our hearts and intentions are. And we, we make as much time as we possibly can to connect with um, and, and shepherd and guide or make introductions to people who are, um, who are considering this path. So uh, if, if people want to connect with me, uh, want to learn more, want to talk to people uh, who've done traditional search, self-funded search, and anything in between, um, I'm happy to, to be a resource and helpful if I can. Well, that's, that's great, Mike. And that was an awesome sentiment you expressed there. So let's, let's leave it at that. And why don't you share with the audience how people can reach out to you if they, if they need your help or guidance or just want to uh, talk about what, what the possibilities are? Sure. I, I think the easiest way to connect with me is via LinkedIn. Mm -hmm. um, so first name, Michael, last name, Curry. I am the CEO of Apex Physics Partners. Um, and um, Besides that, you can shoot me an email at mcurry, C-U-R-R-Y, at apexphysicspartners, all one word, dot com, um, and happy to be a resource if I can. That's great, Mike. Thanks so much for, for coming on and sharing your story, uh, the downs and the ups, and um, congratulations on, on getting through those first two years. Thank you very much, and thank you for having me. I, I really enjoyed this. Mm -hmm.